You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You're listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran business enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Aaron Shaler, a mortgage broker with Grandview Lending, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. I'm your host, Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and we are here with former governor and current Purdue president, Mitch Daniels. Sir, thank you. Thanks for having me, Robert. You you were uh, the absolute number one most requested Leaders and Legends guest. As soon as I started the podcast, literally dozens of emails and texts and Facebook messages. Are you going to get Mitch? Are you going to get Mitch? So thank you. I assumed you'd just gotten to the bottom of the barrel, you know, having <laughs> had such a long and I know you had a long and successful run with this show, but I'm glad you got to me eventually. Well, and we're very, very appreciative and honored, obviously. And a lot of the folks that we've already had on the show, uh, your name was brought up. There's been interaction. There's been discussion and working together. And some of the people who've yet to come on uh, also have a connection. Uh, matter of fact, in just a few days, we'll be sitting down with Nate Feltman. Mm-hmm. Your career in Indiana and beyond is one that is intersected with history and great personalities and great leaders. Some of the people you've worked with have done tremendous things, and you've had a seat at the table. The one you're most often associated with just passed. Talk to us, please, a little bit about your feeling about the passing of Senator Luger and what it is like to work with him both as mayor and senator. My feeling is it's hard to imagine the world without him. He's been a presence, uh, oh, not just in my uh, individual life, but in the life of this state and nation as long as one can remember and was still uh, vitally uh, engaged in public uh, issues, uh, even in his last days. So, uh, uh, of course, I'm wistful about it, but grateful that we had him as long as we did and enormously grateful that that I uh, stumbled into his path early on and uh, was able to work for him and in proximity to him and learn from him uh, in what I think you would call the formative years of my work in life. I wrote an article for The Star, and I called him the greatest statesman in the history of Indiana. Am I way off base, close to the mark? I think you're close to the mark. Oliver Morton might have a claim. Former governor during the Civil War. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, we've had Benjamin Harrison, probably underappreciated. Got a little further in public life. But um, in terms of longevity, a little like the Baseball Hall of Fame, there's some people who are there for spectacular uh, seasons and statistics, and then there's some who are there for a long, long and steadily uh, excellent careers. And they they uh, they all belong and 
clearly Luger's right there in the pantheon of people we produced. We did a podcast, a Leaders and Legends podcast, that was a commemorative uh, discussion with Jim Morris and Jim Shella and Gail Lowry. And one of the questions I asked Jim Morris and Gail was, did you ever tell Dick Luger no, and how did you do it? There really wasn't an answer, because I'm guessing it probably didn't happen. Was there ever a time where you had to say, you know, Senator, I just can't? Oh, not not that, because you never asked uh, anybody to do something uh, dishonest or um, or uh, unacceptable in any way. So if that's what you mean, no, I don't. No, it's don't, more I like don't I think just so. can't shoot. I wish I could. Or oh I yeah, well, there, okay, or... well, yes. Um, when he ran for president, I was just in a point in life where I simply couldn't do what I would love to have done: go off and try to help him. And um, I was deeply involved in. Uh, business at Lilly at the time with major responsibilities uh, and a very important year in that company's history. And um, it would be 1995. Five and six, yep. And um, I had, at that time, four teenage daughters all at the same time with college and maybe weddings and things looming beyond that. And there were just a multitude of reasons that I couldn't pitch in. I felt very badly about that. Um, but um, so that, that'd be the, the one example. Another podcast we did was a commemorative podcast about the life and career of Birch Bayh. And uh, Bill Blameyer and Louis Mayhern especially were very uh, praiseworthy of the relationship they had. Nancy Pappas too, but but the working relationship between Senator Bayh and Senator Luger. You witnessed that firsthand. You went to D.C., I believe, with Luger when he won the Senate race in 76. How would you comment on that? Well, let's back the tape up a little further. I was with Luger in the losing, bruising campaign in 1974 between the two of them. And... um, uh, it was one of the rougher years in general, and uh, that certainly was true in the Luger by race. This is the Watergate, post-Watergate election. No Republican Senate challenger in America won. Luger came closer, just short of 49 percent than any of them. But uh, uh, having that was actually the second time I'd been in a political campaign against Senator Bayh as a college student. I was on the little, I think, seven-person, maybe, staff of Bill Ruckel's house. Oh, in 68. In 1968, who also came close and lost. And uh, so at, at one point in my life, you know, Birch Bayh was the devil incarnate. <laughs> so, yes, then um, uh, Senator Luger defeats the other senator from Indiana, and uh, asked me to go along and organize his operations in Washington and back here in the state. And we got there, and it was, uh, you know, I was just looking, coincidentally, uh, on, the, on the day we're taping this, Bob Blameyer sent me a copy of his book. Yeah, because he yeah, he's doing a book signing thing. And, um, and I, I glanced, I, I, I had actually seen an earlier copy, and, and he talks in there about that relationship. And he, but he points out the very first meeting— which I don't exactly recall, but 
he, re- he relates how Birch Bay and a few of his people came down to visit. And he said Luger seemed a little stiff and awkward, um, which he probably was. I mean, think about it. Not, not two full years before, or just two full years before, they'd been head-to-head for months. And they mentioned that in the podcast, that particular trip, mm-hmm. A, to come to the new office, uh, B, that they made it clear. I asked them, would you have won without Watergate? And they said, no, they didn't think they would have. Just like in 62, I asked them, would you have won without the Cuban Missile Crisis? They said, no. Mm-hmm. They thought 68 was obviously a different kind of race. But I was, I couldn't think of, and maybe you can, because I know your love of history, especially Indiana history, where two people served together in the Senate who had faced off against each other. No, but Bill Hudnut and Andy Jacobs at, in, in the House of Representatives is, is pretty much on all fours with this. And look at it, what a great relationship they eventually had. And Incidentally, that's right. I was involved in Bill Hudnut's 72 winning campaign against Andy Jacobs. That was my assignment from the uh, then uh, party apparatus that I'd gone to work for right out of school. So um, I hadn't thought about this for a while, but uh, if ever, but I actually did see uh, two, two best examples I can think of, of people who uh, had it out toe to toe, probably had hard feelings on the backside of that. Somebody sure. did, maybe both. And then later became uh, through a common interest in serving the state, serving the nation. Um, I think probably uh, through the common experience of going through um, what public life involves, or did even then, came to uh, is rapprochement the word? Uh, let's just say yeah, to a, sure. to a to a new and and, a, and lifelong then positive relationship. So both Jacobs and Hudnut, Luger and By, um, I, I think it's fair to say did that. It was very sincere, and it, ev- it evolved over time, and I think speaks well of all of them. Well, Leaders and Legends podcast is planning a commemorative podcast on both the life and career of Mayor Hudnut and the life and career of Andy Jacobs. I got to know, I didn't know Mayor Hudnut, I mean, met him a few times, but I got to be pretty good friends with Congressman Jacobs, and I joke, the only real argument we ever got into at lunch at Shapiro's, when he could actually take a bite, because everyone came up and wanted to say hi to him, was over the, he was, Congressman Jacobs was absolutely convinced of the innocence of Mary Surratt, who ran the boarding house where the Lincoln conspirators met before the assassination. And I just looked at him like, bleeding heart Marine. And he's like, she didn't know anything about it. I think the evidence is to the contrary, but uh, I... I just thought that it was funny. That's the hill you're going to die on, Andy? Yeah. Did the experience with Keith Bulin, because I know you're interviewed for the book that came out a few years ago, the terrific political book... How did that change your life? And the reason that I'm asking that is because, as you've done a million times more than I have, you talk to young people. And one of the things that in my conversations with young people, college or high school, is get involved in politics. I don't care how you vote. I don't care who you work for. But get involved. You will meet the best people. It will it will forge a path for you. And we had another podcast guest 
named Mark Miles, who talked about his start in politics because he called his friend Debbie, who was going to North Central. And she said, call my brother Mitch, see if he's got a job for you on the campaign because Luger's running against Bye. How has politics forged the path for you both inside and outside of that profession? It is something that a young person uh, can easily uh, get into because you're you're cheap, <laughs> you'll, you know you'll work hard, and and uh, there's uh, always grunt work to be done. Um, and um, I'm, I'm I'll always be glad I did it because of the uh, people I um, wandered into in, an involvement with, and um, Bill Ruckel's house. History will record one of the great Americans. Uh, uh, he would have made a great president. I'm not the first person to observe that. Um, and um, his friend, Dick Luger, I, that's sort of how I drifted from one orbit to the next uh, we've talked about. And um, because of work I'd done there and people I'd encountered in that work, then I got to work for Ronald Reagan. All this took a lot more time than I thought. I've told this story to a lot of young people. When, when I was working two summers in Mayor Luger's office as a college student, you weren't supposed to do more than one, but for some reason they invited me back a second year. And at the end of that second year, so I'm about to head back for my final year of college, and uh, as he always did, he had an exit interview with the Luger, one of many great things about him, he really liked young people. He he uh, he, and later when I was doing it, we always kept the number of interns small so that he could have quality time or they could have it with him. So five or six in a summer. And uh, he always had an exit interview. And so he asked me that uh, day, I'll, uh, what, do you, what do you want to do after you graduate? I said, well, depends on my draft number, how that sure. works out. But if I'm not um, drafted, um, you know, I like what we do here. He's turning the city upside down, and that was the time when the, the saving of the cities was really the domestic issue that people were excited about. And he said, great, great, that's good. He said, but listen, um, do it the right way. Do what I did. Get out and establish yourself first in, a, in business or a profession um, build some experience uh, in, the, in private life and some credibility, maybe a little bit of financial security, and then come to public life. I said, thank you, Mayor. And then he spent the next 11 or 12 years talking me out of that exact advice. Because <laughs> when you became uh, governor, a lot of the people who were heading administrations and your chief of staff and others had established themselves in the private sector. His advice was terrific. It's just that uh, he he thought I could be more useful. I could be more useful to him if, if, uh, if he persuaded me to violate his own advice. <laughs> and so I've passed that suggestion on to many people. It's, it's, it's a good idea. It's fine. And as I, as I indicated, it's... It's not hard for a young person to uh, get in, uh, involved in some way, but it's also too easy for young people to get stuck there. And it's so much fun, and it's exciting, and you feel, if you're lucky, you feel like you're part of something important and good for the country or the, your community. And for all the most human of reasons, a lot of people I've known and you've known uh, started there and got stuck. And, um, you know, I told so many people in Washington, I— I finally broke loose. 
after staying longer than I really ever expected to, um, 11 years. And I uh, finally broke loose and left, uh, and a lot of my friends from the Reagan administration then rolled over into the Bush 41 administration. But they, I got so many calls from people who said, how is it out there? It's like asking some, you know, explorer. <laughs> How's the how sea of tranquility? How was Antarctica? Right. <laughs> and uh, I said, oh, it's the best thing I've done. It's great, it's great for the family. I'm doing some new and different things. I'm learning from them. And, uh, and I told so many people, my little formulation was, listen, you can always get a bus back to Washington, but you can miss the last bus out. And the same could be said about, you know, politics at the state or some other level. A person can get so captivated with it and stay in it to the point that they're not that valuable elsewhere. One of the fun things about the proximity of power, for lack of a better term, is when I was working for Mayor Ballard was you're involved in so many cool things. You can make a difference. You can pull a project out of the hat and say, hey, Mayor, take a look at this. Or, hey, Mayor, this neighborhood has a concern. Will you meet with them? It's very, it's, it's very fulfilling for, for all the best reasons, but um, I've always tried to pass along some version of Luger's advice. And, uh, you know, my own view has always been that, uh, that of, uh, of the citizen legislator or citizen public servant. To me, Luger is the exception that proved the rule, my rule being that people should come and go, mm. learn something, be rooted in the part of, of society that matters, which is not the government. Government is there to, we always have, I've always said, to help the important parts of life, the economy, uh, communities, families, neighborhoods, voluntary associations, to, to, to help them to flourish. If we do government really well, then all those more important parts, the places where people live and, and pursue their dreams, um, are do better. And so uh, I'm eternally grateful that someone as remarkable as Dick Luger spent most of his life in public service, but as a general, but there aren't very many Dick Lugers. And so I, uh, I, I think it's, in, as, a, as a general pr principle, it's better if people come to public life with some grounding in the real, what we call the real society, and uh, do the best they can, and then go back and, in the old phrase, live under the laws you had something to do you with. You passed, mm -hmm. yeah. Did, how would you compare or think about maybe D.C. in the 70s and 80s? A lot of people say, oh, it was so much different back then. I don't necessarily ascribe to that. There were some pretty rough-and-tumble politics in the 70s and 80s. But what was it like just being there in the aftermath of Watergate and during the Reagan years before you left to is was your first job after DC was at the Hudson Institute or did yeah. you go right to Eli Lilly no I was that um, I, I came back and uh, took the job at Hudson Institute as I always say malpracticed some law on the side <laughs> at one of the big firms uh, uh, along along the way and may I ask uh, you a question about that so I don't forget yeah. it so you, I went to summer school at Georgetown for about three months, uh -huh. about 20, 93, journalism stuff. You went there for law school, as I recall. Right, right. Did you ever sit at the exorcist stairs and just look out? 
well, not because of law school, because the law school's closer to Capitol Hill. That's that's why I went there, so I could run everywhere to work, to school, back to work, to home, direct to school. Life was a big triangle for two and a half years. However, <laughs> there were a couple of bars in Georgetown, which were very close. So, yeah, I, of course I went and scouted out the, the uh, location. When you came I just back, didn't have a law book under my arm when I did. <laughs> I just remember walking down the exorcist stairs at one or two or three in the morning, and there were all these people dressed in black, like all of a sudden the, <laughs> the spirit was going to come back and join them. But when you when you were in D.C., what do you think it was a more collegial time, that there were great friendships that you forged there, both in Congress and the White House? Yeah. Um, of course, I'm not there now, happily so, and so I, I only know what we all see and read and hear, but... I know enough people who are there. They're, they're, clearly, it's different. I'm not cer- certain that um, it's an historical first. We've You're an historian, and you know we've had times uh, no, nobody's caned anybody on the Senate floor yet. Bully Brooks. Uh-huh. But um, um, there isn't any question. There was uh, There was – you can look at the statistical facts. There was some overlap between the parties. You had – Lots and lots of uh, Republicans who voted a substantial fraction of the time agreed with uh, Democratic um, presidents or Democratic proposals and vice versa. And um, so that made, I think, for more natural connections than today when there's essentially zero overlap. If you're in one tribe, you vote one way and other tribe the other. Um, So um, I'm not saying it was... Uh, some golden era. A guy I knew back then, right then, has written a book called The Last Great Senate. He worked, uh, his name's Shapiro, Irish Shapiro, and he worked for most of the time for Gaylord Nelson of, of Wisconsin. And it's an idealized version of that very time. Uh, Luger's in it, eyes in it, and, uh, you know, his contention is uh, this is when giants walked the earth, and um, and there were a lot. You know, you go down and look at the list, there, there are names there that we still remember, and I don't know if it'll be like that 30 years from now. I don't know if people will be able to say, hey, think about when... Ed Muskie, George McGovern, Birch by Frank Church. I'm going to leave out a whole bunch of Gaylord Nelson, sure. Scoop Jackson, and on the Republican side, uh, um, Dick Luger, J- uh, Jacob Javits, uh, Howard ba- Howard Baker, Bob Dole, you know, and um, John Tower, Lloyd Benson, uh, on and on and on, and um, um, maybe with the, pa- the, the 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 folks of today will establish similar uh, reputations, but it won't apparently be because they um, came together and uh, or championed together um, um, policies that that we still think highly of. Did it take a call from President Reagan to Senator Luger to pry you away from the Luger Senate staff? How did that transition happen? I was planning to come home anyway, so I had, I had gone to Luger uh, at least a couple of times, 
you know, after I'd, after we'd been there, so let's, I'm sure in 1982, after he was successfully reelected, that was his last tough election. And it was Lloyd tough. Fithian, that was a tough one. It was a bit, well, it was tough all over the right. country. First off year election, the Reagan presidency, we're coming out of, of the uh, 1970s stagflation. Mm-hmm. They had had to do some tough things. The tax cuts were beginning to take effect, but weren't really. Some of them were not even in effect yet. Right. Two years later, it was obvious this had been a great um, set of policies and it worked tremendously. But it wasn't in 82. And there were a lot of people got beat. And Luger survived. I know that was the first time. And then in 84, again, he, he talked me into a, a renewal. And in 84, again, said, hey, Senator, remember what you told me back there in the mayor's <laughs> office? And uh, I don't sure I, if he did, he might have pretended he didn't. And it was always the same answer. Oh, yeah, but but um, um, but you don't want to leave now. We think we're going to do this. We think, don't forget, this bill's coming up. Or <laughs> There was always a reason. And he's a very persuasive guy who I idolized, of course. So anyway, comes um, the end of 1984, and I have accepted a job back home. I'm going, I'm, you know, the fam, we're coming home. The girls at that point, well, we only had three of the four, but they were one, three, and four. And I was, re- Sherry and I were really eager to raise them back in Indiana. And um, that's when I got the call from the Reagan White House. And I, I, I don't think it wasn't like I felt I needed the senator's license. I'd already decided, and finally, I think he'd accepted that I was going to do something different. Um, it was more a matter of me uh, very guiltily calling the law firm back home, say, you know, I think I better not miss this opportunity. And uh, they said, fine, we're, we'll still be here. And they were um, two and a half or three years later. I just read the Richard Reeves uh, book on the Reagan administration, and it's not altogether complimentary, but he's a well-known liberal uh, journalist slash historian. He has a hard time complimenting President Reagan on certain things. And one of the parts of history that I enjoy the most is reading books from people who were there. Or talking to people who were there. One of the best books ever is Reagan at Reykjavik by Ken Edelman. It's mm-hmm. absolutely fascinating. First-hand account yeah, of very that good negotiation. Friend of mine. I, uh, very good friend of mine. I was with him last summer, uh, shortly after the book came out. Brilliant. It's supposed book. to be a movie soon. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. But you were there. What was it like to work with President Reagan and, and maybe some of his staff members who we would know and recognize? It was... Uh, thrilling time. Um, the uh, America was on the way back. By the time I start, late 84, um, uh, you know, it, it, he had just won a thumping re-election. It was morning again in America, as you recall the slogan. So you felt you were part of that. You, We didn't, at that point, when the president would give these speeches about Soviet Union on the ash heap of history, we'd all look at each other and go, well, there goes the old man again. <laughs> you know, but one day, maybe one day, we didn't know, we didn't know it was just a few years away, but you could certainly feel the momentum. And um, there was such clarity. I, uh, in a few years later, after President Bush 41 was defeated, I got a call from a, um, a reporter at the New York Times or somewhere, 
And uh, they asked me to react, actually, to a, a quote from a friend of mine who had been in both administrations. And uh, one of those people who didn't catch the bus that I advised them to, <laughs> to catch. And they asked him, what was the difference? And he said, in the Reagan administration, uh, we got up every morning and knew exactly what the assignment was. Cut spending, lower taxes, fight Russians. He said it was in the air. Yeah, you just knew. He said, and there wasn't any such um, clear uh, instruction in the Bush administration, and he thought that uh, hurt them at the polls as well as um, here and there in getting things done. So um, uh, that that was the the essence of it, I guess. And uh, I remember uh, after that administration, somebody asked me to write a piece, and I did. I called it the conservative Camelot. Camelot was a term you know, you you know, based on the old movie that had been applied to the Kennedy administration, the, this this wonderful, uh, magical uh, time that was different and and, uh, and uh, inspiring. And I think people felt that who saw the world as many of us did, um, saw those years in that way. Yeah, it was Mrs. Kennedy who described it as such to Arthur Schlesinger. Mm-hmm. It was, she evoked the imagery. In the book about the Reagan administration, uh, they asked James Baker, how did Ronald Reagan treat you? And Baker, who was the chief of staff, said he treated us all the same as hired help. Yeah, uh, that's a maybe a little um, blunt way of saying it. But it's, in essence, I know exactly what he's talking about. Anybody who wasn't Nancy Reagan who tells you they were a close friend of Ronald Reagan is probably stretching things. And, um, but I, I will say, you say, hi, the reason I wouldn't say hired help exactly is that he was really friendly. There was no artifice about that. People used to say, ask, ask me all the time, what's he like? What's he like? I said, well, you know, it's what you, what you see. Um, but that didn't mean he let people get close and he didn't unburden himself and, you know, share personal, uh, 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 stories or per, or, or uh, things. It was all very professional. And then you go back to the residence, and I guess when he and Mrs. Reagan were together, then that's where that that's where his personal life was. So uh, even those people who'd been with him a long time would would tell you that that uh, very friendly, very you know considerate of people around him. And the the best uh, assessment I ever heard or um, analysis of that. The one that rang truest with me, uh, John Sears. That name mean anything sure, to you? Sure, the campaign Sears. manager in '76 and yeah, 1980 for uh, a while before. Yeah, they I had lost. met John Sears. He was a real close buddy of Bulin's back in the oh really in the day, and he can't. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, John Sears used to say that it was it was about the. It, he thinks it all went back to the days of B movies in Hollywood. People who like Reagan were in that second tier of stardom, if you go and look, they made an astonishing number of, pi- of, of pictures in a single year. I mean, they had to be cranking them out literally every two or three weeks. I'll get the number wrong, but it would, you know, it'd be, and he, people like him might be in 15, 20, 25 movies in a single year. Mm. So Sears said, think about 
that as your vocation. A whole team comes together. You work like crazy on a common project, and then it's over. And they all go away. And next week, there's a whole new team. <laughs> That's right. And if, you, if, if, if that was your background and orientation, I can understand why you, you wouldn't form a lot of attachments to people. You know, we're here to get a job done and, you know, we may hopefully treat everybody well, but we're not going to, you know, make uh, deep friendships. So I think that uh, um, I'm no amateur psychologist, I'm, but that's, that's, that's a little amateur psychology uh, passed on from someone else. You're listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran business enterprise sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana our friend Aaron Shaler, a mortgage broker with Grandview Lending, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. One of the points of this podcast, besides drumming up business for my business, Veteran Strategies, we're all capitalist Republicans here, is to talk to and talk with and about the people who've made a tremendous difference in Indiana and Indianapolis We've had some of them on, so I'm going to throw a few names out. And if you want to just talk for 30 seconds about what mm-hmm. you know about them and what they've done, Jim Morris. Uh, greatest uh, citizen I've uh, known or we've known in Indiana who was never elected to public office. There's nothing important that's happened in Indianapolis uh, uh, over the last half century now that he wasn't involved in somehow. Allison Melangdon. A superb organizer, um, deeply virtuous and admirable person. I learned that later, but the th- first thing you learn about Allison is that uh, if you want, uh, you know, if we had to invade Normandy again, I think I'd ask her to, uh, to take a lead role. She's the, she has the Midas touch, for sure. And she was very complimentary about your help during the Super Bowl. Uh, we were a bit player, just the cheerleader for all that. Uh, they, they, she, Mark, and that group did a spectacular job. Still remembered as the uh, – if you talk to anybody around the NFL, still remembered as the best-run Super Bowl. Um, and then Providence smiled on us weather-wise, and it was, uh, it was glorious. Greg Ballard, my former boss, who I can't say no to either. Yeah, uh, com- common sense uh, and uh, so practical. Just what you want in a in a mayor of a of a large city. Um, you know, it, it, there's a place for deep philosophical thinking and drawing ideological lines and you know, taking stances. You know, but for the vast majority of us, in your mayor, can you? Uh, can you make basic services work? Did my trash get picked up? Is my street in okay shape? Am I safe? Correct. And, uh, you know, here and there, uh, are, are we growing? Are, are people coming here? Are businesses investing here? And that's what he spent, as far as I could tell, uh, his every waking moment on, and bless him for it. John Mutz. So thoughtful. John Mutz. Uh, uh, if Jim Morris is the um, greatest citizen we've known who never held public office, John Mutz certainly one of the greatest citizens we've known who uh, uh, didn't become governor and would have been a great one. He was so prepared. And um, but um, great business, good, good example of the uh, 
of the Luger advice, a very successful business person before he came to public life, and I think that's one reason he was always so valuable. Still very inquisitive guy, learning, thinking. Um, I know in my tour, uh, I, uh, I ask him repeatedly for things, and starting with the most important committee we had, which is the Economic Development Corporation we created. A couple more before we move on. Uh, Mark Miles, who you must have known forever now. Yeah, no, no. Um, I, I, I knew him in our mutually misspent youths. <laughs> North Central. <laughs> well, a little after that. I got a few years on Mark, but we met, uh, as you mentioned, uh, when he was still at Wabash and I was not too far out of school. Um, I'm so proud of Mark. Let me just say it that way. He has always been a, a, a really talented guy, but gosh, he's become a spectacularly good businessman. Uh, and public citizen, and uh, everything he's been asked to do, and he's had a varied career, um, has uh, has worked out uh, terrifically well. Um, I know I owe him a lot in the following. I mean, in many ways, but in here's the here's one, the big one. Um, I've very often been asked, oh, you've done these different things, which was which helped you the most? And so people always think I'm going to pick something from public life. Sure. You know, OMB or something. Uh, no, no, no. It was years at Lilly by far. And uh, I and learned Mark so much. at Lilly, yeah. Learned so much. Uh, it was given a, at least one or two assignments I was really not ready for and, <laughs> you know, got challenged in every way that you want to be. And that wouldn't, I don't think that had happened without Mark. So Mark was there had, and uh, uh, hadn't been there too long and was on an upward track when he was recruited for the tennis tour or association. And uh, I'm pretty sure he's the one put the finger on me and told the folks there who were upset that he was leaving, um, I, you know, here's, a, here's a, a, a candidate to fill the vacancy. And so I started in a job sort of like the one he had and then went on from there. So uh, thank goodness that happened um, for many reasons. But uh, um, uh, I don't think it would have but for his suggestion. Two more, very quickly. David Frick, who came on the podcast, and most people haven't heard of him. Obviously, he's not elected to anything. But the reception and the and the the comments I got when people listened to the podcast with David Frick were, Oh my God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no. Dave, Dave Frick is, uh, is a Jim Morris who, uh, uh, has, uh, uh, that people should know all about him. Mean, he'd been, he was in the middle of, of, um, so many of the fundamental steps along the way to Indianapolis's present, uh, status as, as a top city. Um, gosh, I think I first met Dave Frick when I was a high school student. He was a college senior or something, BMOC somewhere. That at IU. Was it IU, I guess. It's because it's where he met Jim Morris. And uh, some kind of a summer, one of those leadership uh, weeks you get invited to if you're, you know, doing good things in high school. And uh, I thought, boy, that guy. There's a cool guy, and uh, then later on, uh, of course, knew him. He was um, top 
um, advisor and help, uh, aid to HUD Nut, so I guess we connected there too. But yeah, um, when the definitive histories of Indianapolis are written, there's a chapter, got to be a chapter about David. Last but not least is our friend P.E. McAllister. Oh, what to say? The, you, if you only had one legend on your podcast, it'd be P.E. You know, a, a literal century of, uh, of leadership. He's a Renaissance man. Uh, uh, who actually deserves that? That title occasionally gets bestowed on people who aren't nearly as eclectic as, as PE has been. And so, uh, businessman, citizen, uh, political uh, uh, actor, uh, philosopher, television uh, host. I can't, you know better than I, all the things he's philanthropist. done. Philanthropist. Yeah, philanthropist for, for sure. We all love him and, uh, and uh, revere him. And, uh, and we're all still learning from him. About a year ago, I sent you a text saying, I'm going to write an article about PE's 100th birthday for Indy Star. Can you give me a quote? About 30 seconds later, here comes the text back with your quote. Uh, he's on the mind of a lot of people a lot of times for everything that he's done. In 1988, I believe, correct me please, you were offered a United States Senate seat by Governor Bob Orr which you declined. Yeah, that was, I don't usually stew over things, but that, for I hope for reasons I hope are understandable, I spent a little time <laughs> wrangling with. Uh, so I certainly, you know, it's, a, it's commonly observed, and I've certainly experienced it. a lot of the best decisions you ever make are when you decide not to do something that's, that's tempting or sounds good and, and this is surely one of those. No, it's so. Um, you know, I remember now. I've, I've only I've been involved in the Senate, and I did idealize the place probably a little bit at the time, and and uh, thought, gosh, maybe one day, you know. And uh, so suddenly, Dan Quayle gets elected. Bob Orr has an appointment to make. He calls me. I go down and sit in the little breakfast nook, which I never imagined later. I, years later, I'd be inviting people <laughs> into there at the governor's residence and um, ask about that. And um, but it was just it wasn't anything right about it. Not for me, and not for the state, not for the party I was associated with. Uh, they got the right person when they got Dan Coates. He, did, he went on to Correct. a terrific assignment. I mean, when I say the right person, he was not only he's in Congress, he was ready for the job, which I think I could have done a good job. But, but uh, you know, whoever was appointed had to run in an election um, within two years. And then that was only going to finish the term. Then had to run again. So... Uh, I'm home at that point, not much over a year. Got a new vocation going. I got an organization that's recruited me and depends on me, starting to save some serious money for the family's future. And you had the, your four daughters. The girls are one, two, four, six, and eight at that point. So there wasn't. When I say there wasn't anything right about it, either from the party's standpoint or. Uh, because their interest had to be in hanging on to the scene, um, which Dan had a much better shot at doing, I thought, or the personal standpoint. But still, they're you know, on a silver platter. Are you kidding? 
this and uh, so anyway, it was it wasn't an automatic, uh, it wasn't a reflexive no. But I'm sure I'm, I, when I said no, I I've never regretted it, and, and you know, life worked out. Did you reach out to Senator Luger and say I got a chance to be your junior senator, and uh, without breaking a confidence? Do you remember what he said if you talked to him about it? Of course, he thought it was a terrific idea. I mean, he couldn't imagine why anybody wouldn't. It was the best job in the world, and by the way, the way he did it, it probably was, and for him it was. So he just thought, and he saw nothing but positives. But, uh, again, um, I I had a different set of considerations. You you mentioned just a few minutes ago about your time at Lilly being so formative and so important and so rewarding, yet you left to go back into public service. How hard is it to say no— when mm-hmm. people call you, like Ronald Reagan or Richard Luger, or in this case, President George W. Bush, it ought to be hard, but it's not impossible. They called me. They, the uh, Bush Cheney transition group, right after the Florida court finally settled the election, and said, "Hey, um, we got you on our list. We want you to we, you know, come on back." These are, I mean, Cheney I knew and, and other people there I, I knew. Andy Carter, who became the chief of staff, had worked for me, really, in the Reagan White House. So, um, but they called about a different job. And I said, ah, no, you know, you can get somebody, you can get a lot of people better than I for that. I'm not, that's not me. And um, I have then, to ask. What was it? Yes, sir. It was in charge of congressional liaison. You know, the, the, it's a very important job. The White House is representative to the Hill. But I, you know, I, I hadn't, there were a few people left I knew, but I did, the place changes, the people change. It wasn't anything that particularly interested me anyway. One thing, one reason I did not want to get stuck in Washington, I always told people I never, ever, want to find myself in a job where the role is to go around and kiss up to people who hold my old job. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it just, which happens to a lot of people. Sure. You know, that's where the money is. That's where. So anyway, uh, so I said, hey, thanks for thinking of me, but no. And within a day, maybe two, they call back and they say, well, you know, uh, what about OMB? And I went home and told my wife, I said, well, now we got a problem because now they're calling about the one job they've got that would that I'd really like to do because it touches everything in the government. It's the one job that's both at the White House, but in the cabinet. And where, um, as I used to tell our people, um, if the president will um, authorize it, which some presidents do and some don't. But the presidents who use that place and who let that place operate on their behalf, uh, I used to say, look, our, our job is to solve 10 problems today so the president never has to hear about them except when we report the result. So he can concentrate his time on the biggest issues. And so that's so anyway, that's why I did it. So would your quote of don't just stand there, spend something that you said about Congress probably wouldn't have worked if you were the congressional liaison. Yeah, no, in that job, I probably wouldn't have uh, 
I wouldn't have said such a thing. You know, I wouldn't have. Somebody has to play bad cop once in a while, and but not that. But that job doesn't. That job's supposed to. It's like a, you know, diplomat or something. You're supposed to see it from their side. Were you in Washington D.C. on September 11th? Yeah, sure. I was, at, yeah, I was at the White House. What was that like? To the extent that you can tell us, chaos. There was no system. There were no uh, speaker system. No communication system. Um, and you were actually in the White House. Yeah, well, I was in a meeting in the Eisenhower Building, right across Executive Drive. You know, on the com- in the compound, and right. I know exactly how long it take, took to sprint to the Oval Office because I did it a thousand times, you know, forty some seconds. And um, yeah, uh, like most Americans, first became aware of it over television. I was we were I was looking from out into the uh, ante room or the, the, the of our. Uh, suite of offices there and uh, there was a tv on with the news channel and you so you see the problem and then you see another one and and um my deputy and i he was an old defense hand we said you know this is not ac- this is not accidental but we were in no different mood than that and then the word comes around literally somebody going down the hallway saying walk don't run i mean run don't walk sorry mm-hmm. um uh, everybody out, and um, that's as they'd figured out that the, that the White House was probably a target too. So I went outside, and uh, although I'll tell you what what it did, I uh, um, I went outside, and by then you heard the noise; you could see smoke across the Potomac, mm. Pentagon. Streets are filled with people. Cell phones don't work too well. But we, OMB, had an annex office in a building maybe a block west of the White House. So I went over there and I found a, I got on a landline. And I called the military driver that was assigned to move me around. I said, hey, John, where are you? He said, I'm at my desk. I said, your desk? He had a, they had an office in the far corner of the Eisenhower building. I said, you're not supposed to be there. Everybody's supposed to be out of there. I said, but since you're there. Run downstairs, stop in the office, get my uh, briefcase, whatever's still in the inbox, and my gym bag, <laughs> and meet me. And we agreed, and he'd get the car. We each had to move the car out through crowds and stuff. And we met about maybe down around 18th and F or something like that, you know, just far enough, and got out. And he took me out Connecticut Avenue to the little apartment I had. And I got on the phone and tried to start figuring out what was going on. I'm probably, as far as I know, I was the first person back inside. They established a military perimeter a few blocks out on every side of the White House. And I'm probably the first person back in late that afternoon. And we had some phones put on the table in the uh, Roosevelt room. And I started getting on the phone talking to cabinet officers. And I said, we don't, don't know exactly what we have here, but we're going to need – what are you going to need to respond? And we're going to start putting together what became actually a, the first request for supplemental appropriations and so forth. And I was sitting there. My deputy finally got in. The two of us were sitting there talking to various agencies of government, and the president's speaking right across the hallway to the nation – so that was my 9-11. We are going to hopefully record a second podcast with Mitch Daniels that talks about his years as governor and his years 
running Purdue University, but uh, we don't want to give short shrift to those amazing years, so we're going to ask his indulgence to come back. But we are going to do the five questions. So, Governor, if you're ready. I'm ready because you were gracious enough to get me ready and let me know what you want to know. What was your first job? Well, I don't know if you want to count mowing lawns and paper route for the Indianapolis News, but if ter- in terms of a real job uh, on the payroll job, was at the Riviera Club of Indianapolis. Uh, started off uh, grilling hamburgers and fixing food for people and and uh, worked there uh, really three and a half summers. Uh, graduated on to things like painting and building tennis courts and occasional lifeguarding. What was your first concert? Yeah. You know, I've gone to so few. It's not that hard. I, I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. I went to see The Love and Spoonful and The Association at Clues Hall. That's somebody else. Somebody else mentioned that. Oh, I know who it is. It's Terry Curry, the current Marion County prosecutor. That was his first I concert. I think that was probably it. And I'd, I'd be embarrassed to tell you how few there have been since. But that, that I remember that one. All right. This is a toughie. Number three. Because I know what a voracious reader you are and lover of history. But if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Yeah, it is hard. And I'm sure I'm overlooking lots of strong candidates. But I'm going to say Free to Choose. Milton Friedman's Free to Choose. Just because it's so, uh, first of all, so clear and plain spoken. And on on the fundamental question, are we going to be a free people who who value individual liberty and uh, and value the individual over uh, society and and um, uh, and in a, if you'd asked me ten years ago, I probably would have picked something else. But these days, when there's uh, we've got a, I think uh, inadequately educated uh, younger people and population, uh, people are f- taking too many things for granted. Free to choose would be a good place to start. And if if people in this Twitter age don't, can't bring it bring themselves to read a whole book. <laughs> Get the uh, get the uh, TV shows, and uh, they're fabulous, too. It's a really good interview. It's on YouTube with uh, Phil Donahue. It's a tour de force, Milton Friedman. Everything he did. Number four, if you could witness – this is – sorry, another toughie. If yeah. you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens. Yeah. Which event would you choose? It's a fascinating question. So I don't know. The, the resurrection Um be hard to – top or the crucifixion and the resurrection uh other than that and i'm not saying this just because we're on the precipice of an anniversary but the lunar landing you know i'd like to have been a uh, space tourist with neil and buzz some of your fellow boilermakers one of those two and many many more that's right number five if you could have dinner with anyone living today two hours off the record just to chat whom would you choose? I'm not sure this is the right answer, but the best one that came, the one that came to mind is Paul Johnson, the uh, historian. And I think the reason is because uh, he has studied and written on such a broad array of topics, ranging from the, uh, the history of the Jews, um, the history of Christianity, uh, the, uh, the History of the American People, one of the great, great books. Modern Times, one of the most, uh, uh, the, which is the study of totalitarianism, where it came from, what it means, what it is, 
You know, people today who loosely talk about, yes, yeah, socialism sounds all right. I go read that book. Mm-hmm. See, see how you feel about a system that leads to 100 million people getting murdered. So, um, yeah, I think he'd be fascinating. Just, I'd, and I'd also just like to know how does somebody learn so much? Someone said about Johnson, where does he find the time to write all that? And someone else said, that's not the fascinating question. Where does he find the time to read all that? In other words, everything he had to learn to write so beautifully and authoritatively. So, yeah. Think about Gibbon writing the rise, the decline mm-hmm. and fall of the Roman Empire in the late 18th century. Yeah. Where in the world do you get all this information then? Yeah, well, uh, so uh, until I think of somebody else, I, I guarantee you Paul Johnson would be worth, he'd be worth the two hours. Last, we're going to add two, and it's very quick. I have a son coming to Purdue this fall to uh, be a part of the aviation school. He simply cannot wait. Any advice for him? Get ready to study hard. That's what I tell all the incoming freshmen or even prospective students that I bump into as I have been all day today. Um, uh, This is a place, and I hope we are preserving this, where students get stretched and and um, and pushed a little harder than apparently is the case at many other colleges. And it's a little bit the function of what we teach because we are heavily STEM-oriented, but not just that. I think it's uh, it's been part of the culture of this place across the disciplines. And uh, so that's uh, – uh, there's that, but uh, – and I'll he'll hear me on uh, freshman night or the first night they're actually here uh, pass on some student advice – which is they they summarized as four three two one, which is um, uh, to uh, uh, f- graduate in four years, try to maintain a three point average or or better, study two hours for every hour of class, very important, not happening on most campuses, and try to find at least one uh, really um, one activity. Um, student activity, at least one that you get deeply involved in. And um, so I'll, uh, I'll, I'll encourage them to do that. And one more. I always tell our students, um, do not miss the chance, whatever you're studying, to uh, absorb some of the classical liberal arts, the chance to read and discuss the, the, the best that has been thought, said, and written. And um, and uh, it's possible to go through schools, including this one these days, and miss a lot of that, but it's a mistake when students do. Hope you're listening to that, Andrew. And then last question, as someone who parented four teenage daughters, do you have any advice for me as my daughter Anna enters her junior year at Ron Colley High School? Some, uh, some British... Uh, uh, Lord or writer a long time ago said, before I had children, I had four theories of how to raise them. Now I have four children and no theories. <laughs> You'll do you. fine. Thank you, Governor Daniels. You're very kind with your time, and uh, we will reach out again to discuss the years of running for governor, being governor, and not only... Uh, being president of Purdue University, but I really want to talk to you a little bit about a future podcast guest, and that guy's name is Eric Holcomb, and how you felt when he was elected governor, your former staffer. Well, we'll do that. 
Thank you, Governor, very much. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.